sermon. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 4. If you do not have your Bibles, you can use one of those white Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can also keep that Bible if you'd like. So this is the last chapter. Another book we've gone through now. This is what we do. We preach uh, through the books of the Bible. Uh, now next week we'll be in uh, next week will be Easter. We'll be actually in Romans chapter five, uh, really walking through just what is the gospel. Uh, and then after that, uh, just to kind of give you a little trajectory, we're actually going to not do what we always do, and we are going to uh, preach through the Apostles' Creed, and we'll be in a lot of different texts as we move through that. And we'll explain more what the Apostles' Creed is uh, in a couple weeks, but basically it is, uh, it is a statement of faith about uh, who we believe our God is, what he has done for us through Jesus Christ, and who we are as his children and so we will be walking through that um, after Easter. Uh, but today we're going to come into Jonah, and we're finishing chapter 4. And if you're new, if you haven't been with us throughout the series, Jonah is a strange and interesting prophet. Rather than standing in contrast to God's people, he is like God's people. He represents them. Just as Israel has been disobedient to God, so Jonah has also been disobedient to God. But what we see is that while Jonah deserves punishment for continually running from God, from disobeying God, God continues to give grace. Um, and what we're going to see today is, is how God is going to bring this grace to a climax in Jonah's life. And then we're going to be left with just wondering, what is it that Jonah does? Uh, Jonah and the book of Nahum are the only two books in the Bible that end with a question. And so we're left going, what is, going, what is Jonah going to do? And that is the very thing that we are going to be wrestled or, or forced to wrestle with also is how will we respond to the message of Jonah? Because as we've talked about, just as Jonah represents Israel, he also really represents us in the fact that we sin, in fact that we're in rebellion to God, the fact that God gives us grace in Jesus. And so how is it that we respond? Um, and we're going to be looking at that today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, to Jonah chapter 4, and I invite you to stand, and we're going to read through all of chapter 4. We stand when we read God's word, we do so because we believe it comes with his full authority and it's inspired by his, by his spirit. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, sat on the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save, uh, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked 
that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for this book, the book of Jonah. God, I thank you how, how you show your grace in this book. How we see your sovereign control over all of creation and how you wield creation for the purpose of revealing your grace, your might, your power, your love. And God, I pray today that we would see the message that is before us. The fact that you are unrelenting in your grace and that you desire to bring the sin deep within our hearts to our lips that we would confess it to you. And Lord, I pray that is what happens today. I pray as we are in your text that whatever sin is in our hearts, whatever it is that we are wrestling with here today, that you would unearth that sin and that we would repent and that we confess you as our Lord and our Savior. God, we thank you for this message. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to walk through the text. What we begin with is Jonah is angry. Verse 1 literally reads, It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. The author doesn't want us to miss that Jonah is angry. Now, when Virginia, if you stayed up with NCAA uh, basketball, when they won the championship last week, you notice that after the championship, they were not complaining about the refs. They were not complaining about how their team played. In fact, they were not crying in pain either. But they responded in great joy, jumping up and down. They responded rightly. Here we have Jonah. He's been saved from death, from drowning. He preached a message to some of the worst people. And they believed the message. A whole city has come to repentance. He has one of the greatest track records of any preacher. And rather than being excited, he's fuming with anger. And we're just sitting there going, what's wrong, Jonah? If you've been with us, we've walked through who Nineveh is. Nineveh is one of the capitals of Assyria. Assyria was largely a terrorist nation who tortured uh, their enemies. They were known for their brutality. Jonah didn't want to go there. And what we see is, is in this text why Jonah didn't want to go here. Now we've touched on this in the weeks coming from here, but, but now we're in the text. So why is Jonah angry? He's angry because God has acted wrongly. He's done what God should not have done. Look at verse 2. Jonah says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? So chapter 3 is, he preaches the message, a very, very short message which is recorded. All of Nineveh repents. And now he's going, is this not what I said? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I know that you're gracious. I know that you're merciful. You can't read this and go, like, he's not praising God as he's, re, as he's telling, saying this description of God. He's not going, God, you're so gracious. You're so merciful. I mean, you're just steadfast in your love, God. No, he's, he's ticked off here. He's yelling these things at God. You're just too gracious. You're too merciful. 
Now pause here for a moment. There are many people when they read the Bible or, or they've heard things about the Bible and they say, you know, the God in the Old Testament, he is angry. He's mean and he's wrathful. Have you heard that before? So here we have a guy in the Old Testament living in, in the very culture that other people today are talking about and he accuses God of exactly the opposite. God, you're actually too gracious. You're too merciful. So when people... You hear them say, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's just angry. Take them straight to Jonah. And show them, we have a prophet who so understood the character of God that he didn't want to go tell other people about him because he knew that God would save them. So let us not just listen to what other people say about God's word, but let us bring God's word back to them that they would be faced with the truth of God's word. And so what we have is Jonah believes that these people, Nineveh, should not be saved. In fact, they were not worthy of salvation. You see, Jonah is not just a patriot, but he's a nationalist. A patriot is one who is proud of one's country because of what it does. A nationalist is one who is proud of the country regardless of what it does. It is, is a devotion to one's country at the expense of other people groups. It often promotes racism and ethnocentrism. ethnocentrism. I can't even say that word right now. I haven't had a problem ever saying it, but now, now in front of you, I, I can't speak. Uh, but what it does, it promotes this blind arrogance towards other people people groups and you can see it today many people have that here in america towards other people groups and in fact uh we need to make sure that even as christians we we, we can struggle with this uh coming from the midwest and many of you have been in the midwest uh not in all churches but this is somewhat true that if you go preach in a, a, a church in the midwest and you preach a lot of about America and the greatness of America and that America is God's nation and America is God's hope for the world, you'll probably get more amens than if you preach Jesus on the cross. Like that's actually very, very true in parts of our very own country. Um, and I don't necessarily would say I doubt the people's salvation, but there's a tendency to, to fall into the trap that Jonah has fallen into here. And so I just ask you, do you struggle with God's grace? Do you get angry when good things happen to other people? Do you find yourself thinking, why did that happen to them? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with bitterness? Do you find that it becomes quite normal for you? Unrighteous anger is a result of wanting the world to operate in a way in which we approve. It's wanting things to go the way we want it to, and when it doesn't go the way we want it to, we respond in anger. We believe that there's been some injustice that is done, and that's exactly where Jonah is. He believes God has acted unjustly. And therefore, we're going to see what, what Jonah's anger looks like. First, his anger justifies. It's all about me. In fact, if you look at the prayer of Jonah, it's not really about God. It's about Jonah. If you look at all the personal pronouns, there's four I's, two my's, and two me's. I mean, he's all looking at, this is what you've done, God. I, 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 I don't approve. After um, Jonah is trying to justify himself for running away in chapter 1. This is why he says, this is why I ran. I was just in running away. Because, because this is what I knew that you would do. 
See, unrighteous anger will always place us in the right and others in the wrong. You don't lose when you're unrighteously angry. Think about back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and, in, Adam and Eve, they sin, right? God, God appears in the garden. What does Adam do? She gave me the fruit. He's justified himself. It's not really my fault. She gave it to me. Anger blames. So we see Jonah accuses God of acting wrongly. In fact, what's interesting, verse 2, Jonah is quoting this statement that describes God. Now this statement is used throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I believe we see it first in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, Moses cries out, God, I want to see your glory. And so God responds with, with giving him this statement that we have here, that he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Joel chapter 2, Joel is a prophet a little bit before Jonah, and he comes and he brings a message of repentance to God's people, and he bases the, the call for repentance on this text. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, he says we should repent because our God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. And so Joel says, because God is like this, let us draw close to him. But now Jonah is using this text that is meant to draw us close to him, that is meant to bring us to repentance, that is meant to lead us to worship. And because of his anger, he's twisted it, and now he's using it to defame the name of God. Because when we are filled with unrighteous anger, we will find even the character of God repulsive. And we will see that what he has done is wrong, so we will blame him. Unrighteous anger will always see others as the problem, which is why after Adam said, she gave it to me, and technically, God, you kind of gave her to me. The woman you gave me. So when he says, God, the woman you gave me, he's saying, well, it's, it's her fault, but, but God, who ultimately takes the blame here? It's you. You should have made a better woman. Is that not what he's saying in the text? He's blaming because of his anger. And Jonah is sitting here and saying, God, it's really your fault. This should not have happened. And then we see that anger resists. In verse 3, Jonah just says, why don't you just take my life? If you look at that, therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life. I think it's interesting he's asking God to kill him. Probably because he knows back in chapter 4 or chapter 1 when he ran from God and said, just throw me overboard. Him trying to kill himself didn't quite work. So now he's like, God, it's up to you. Just please just make it quick. Um, if God's going to be gracious to whomever he wants, if salvation is going to be available to, to all people, then Jonah wants no part of it. He wants out. He's calling it quits. Now, our unrighteous anger might, always, might not always lead to us wanting to be killed. Maybe it's leaving the church. Maybe it's pursuing divorce. Maybe it's quitting a job. Maybe it's fighting with someone. Maybe it's killing someone. Maybe it's with our words, the way we slander them. We, we see this also in the Genesis account. Um, in chapter 4, we see that Cain, uh, um, Adam and Eve have had two children, Cain and Abel. And we see that Abel gives a sacrifice. It's accepted to God. Cain gives a sacrifice. It's not acceptable. So he's now mad at, at his brother Abel. And so what does his anger do? It will move him to action. 
and ultimately he will kill his brother. Our anger will always manifest itself in action. You can't be an angry person and it not begin to show. It will affect the way we live. It will cause us to be bitter, grumbling people. Now, to some degree, we all struggle with anger. some degree, we all struggle with anger. We all struggle with the world not operating the way we want it to. So I ask you, do, do you struggle with anger? Do you find yourself constantly justifying yourself, blaming others? You find yourself grumbling and bitter about the circumstances always around you. Unrighteous anger is always the result of misunderstanding God, sin, and grace. We'll always be misunderstanding those. We misunderstand God. We are angry at God because we think he's like us. We forget that we're made in his image, not the other way around. Therefore, we believe we're justified. If he is like us, then he should be like us and act in the way that we think he should and therefore we're justified in blaming him and grumbling against him we misunderstand our sin we see other people's sins more acutely than we do our own we see other people's sins more grievous than ours and ours excusable you ever notice that when you cut someone off you're like oh you you know it was an accident when they cut you off you're mad right we misunderstand grace we think much of other people's sins and little of our own, we thus think that some people are unworthy of grace. But what we see is that God's grace is goodness to those um, who deserve the opposite. We all deserve the opposite of God's grace. The Bible is clear that we are sinful people, that we all rebel against God, therefore we all deserve God's uh, wrath. So the fact that any of us receive anything good is all grace. We all have grace right now. This is what's called common grace. The fact that that everyone is just living right now. Believers and unbelievers, just God's common grace sustaining the world. But Jonah thinks, eh, I think some of us actually are worthy of God's grace. I think some of us deserve it and others do not deserve it. And he believes Israel is, is God's sacred people because of something intrinsic within them which is why he can see God has saved me. That's a good thing. God has, God has done good for Israel, even though if you remember in chapter 1, we see Israel has been rejecting God. They've been worshiping idols, yet God has given, uh, allowed prosperity to happen. He's given uh, grace to Israel, yet they do not turn to him. They continue to reject him. But Israel's not saved because of something intrinsic within them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we read why God saves Israel. In chapter 7, he says this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you it is simply out of his choice what he's saying it's not because you were more numerous it's not because you looked better it's not because you had m- more things it's not because of anything about you it's simply by god's grace that he saves this is what jonah has missed and because he misses under- because he doesn't understand this he begins to think more highly about himself more highly about his people and he thinks less about others and the crazy thing is as we come through this text rather than God bringing punishment and wrath and God just saying 
Fine, Jonah, you want to know what it's like to be under the wrath of God? He gives grace. He continues to give grace. In fact, God's going to do this by asking three questions. Like a good father, he's going to unearth the sin within Jonah's heart. Now parents, just a little side tip, this is wisdom for us here. God as a father is is showing us how do we approach others. And and he's going, this is how we do it. And he's going to ask these questions that will bring Jonah to face his sin. So he begins with, in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Here's God asking the simple question, Jonah, are you right to be angry about me saving these people? So what does Jonah do? He goes outside the city. He separates himself from the Ninevites who have just repented and believed in God. Now what should he have done? All of, all of Nineveh repents. Now do they know much about God? Do they have the word of God? What's, what should the one guy do who has the word of God? He should have been the John Calvin to them as he did to Geneva and goes and disciples them and encourages them. He should have been the pastor that goes and raises them up. He should have been the Christian, as we're called to disciple one another, who comes alongside them and says, let's read the word together now. Let us see who this God is. Let us grow in our knowledge of him that we would live accordingly. But rather than do that, anger and sin will always move us away from people. So he now goes outside the city, builds a little shack, which there's not wood out in the wilderness. So whatever he builds, it's going to be this flimsy, terrible shack. And so he goes out there, and he sits, and it says... Till he should see what would become of the city. So what do you think he's wanting to happen here? He's probably hoping for fire. He's like, maybe. Maybe their repentance isn't real. Let's just see. Maybe God will still come through. And he's just sitting there waiting. And I imagine he's just fuming in his anger. He's just grumbling, probably saying things, God, I, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you saved these wretched people. You've blown it this time. You've gone too far. You see, he's probably just wrestling through with all this, grumbling. Um, I just finished studying uh, the book of James with, with several guys on Monday night. It was cool. James ends in chapter 5 with actually talking about grumbling. And it shows in James that grumbling is always discontentment with God. Ultimately, when we grumble, we're discontent with who our God is and what he's doing in our life. Grumbling is the outward display of a heart that does not trust in God. Because when we're grumbling, we're like, oh God, this shouldn't have happened. And God, if you knew this, then why didn't you help? Why didn't you give grace? Why didn't you operate in a different way? So he's grumbling, he's angry, he's fuming, he's just waiting to see what will happen. What we're going to see next, though, is just how gentle God is. We're going to see verse 2 lived out. The fact that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Rather than punishing Jonah, he pursues Jonah. And so what we see, he's going to do it in a very interesting way. He first appoints a worm to come and eat the plant. Or he first appoints a plant to grow uh, that would give Jonah shade. So he gives, in verse 6, a plant to Jonah that would would benefit him. 
And Jonah looks at the plant. And notice in verse 6, it says, He was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What other thing in the book of Jonah has, jo- has Jonah been exceedingly glad about? Nothing. He's happy about a plant. Now, if you're not, you know, in the plants, you definitely don't understand this. If you kill everything green, you might not understand this. Uh, but he is happy about a plant. He's not happy about anything else. He's not happy about God. He's not happy that the sailors were saved. He's not happy that he was saved. He's not happy that Nineveh is saved. He's happy about a plant. It's something that brings him immediate comfort and joy. Notice that. It's his immediate comfort and joy, and that's what he's concerned about. And so then God appoints a worm to eat the plant. Now this is interesting. So we all think grace comes to us like the plant. We all think God's grace comes to us in this box with a bow, and it looks really great, and this is how God treats us. We're his children. God wants the best things for us, so he will give us really, really good things all the time. That's what grace looks like, right? Not necessarily. God gives something good, and then he takes it away. And this is still grace, because what he's doing, he's unearthing the sin in Jonah's heart. And so then what we see is not only does he take away this good gift that he gave him, but now he's going to bring some pain and misery on him because he appoints a scorching east wind in the sun to beat down on Jonah. So this is how God acts. We need to make sure that we think about God the way the Bible talks about God, not the way we just make up in our own heads. God gives Jonah a gift. He takes away the gift that causes him pain and misery. In fact, Jonah is so miserable, he wants to die. This is the third time in the book now Jonah's like, just kill me. I want to die. If I can't have my plant, I'd rather die. Now, God's not causing pain and misery upon Jonah because he takes great delight in it. He's going, oh man, what else can I do to him? It's not a test case. He has a plan. God's unrelenting grace is unearthing the sin that is residing deep within his heart. So know this. God is perfectly fine with causing us pain so that we'd repent and and experience his grace now so we will not experience his eternal wrath later. Do you know that? He's good with us experiencing pain now in a finite way So we don't experience eternal wrath because we've rejected His grace. So the difficulties and pains that come into our lives at times, that come into Jonah, that come into our, are not chaotic events in which God is not in control, but they are often the very precise means in which God is using to expose the sin within our hearts that He would draw us close to Him. We need to know that. We need to think like that. We need to talk to other people like that. So when we're counseling, when we're shepherding, when we're facing difficulty, we can listen to these truths, and we can know these truths. So now we come to the second question. Verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant, Jonah? So first, it's, do you do well to be angry that I've saved people? Yes. Okay. Let's bring a plant into the story. Does that make sense? Do you do well to be angry about a plant? Jonah now responds, yes, I do. Well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. Fourth time Jonah wants to die. Jonah is upset 
because people are saved and his plant has died. Does it sound foolish? Does it sound ridiculous? Does it sound stupid? What do you think unrighteous anger does? This is it. Unrighteous anger is always foolish. We think we're wise. We're, we're justifying ourselves. But our anger is foolish. It's stupid. It's futile. Here, Jonah values a plant more than people. Look, our anger will always objectify people. That's the way we can be justified in hating them. You understand that? That's what our anger does. It will objectify. It will turn them into an object no different than a plant, which is why I don't care if this person gets crushed. I don't care if they go to hell. I don't care that they don't have God's grace. That's what unrighteous anger will do. It objectifies people so that we can justify ourselves, we can blame others, and we can treat them the way that we want. This is what God is revealing in Jonah's heart. He's showing that we can love things. We can love plants and cars and iPhones and whatever else, our schedules, our freedom, whatever, more than we actually love people. And so now God's going to ask Jonah one more question. So through God's grace, now we're going to come, Jonah's now going to come face to face with his sin. <clears throat> Verse 10. This is where God says, Jonah, you, you pity a plant that you did nothing for. And it lasted for a short period of time. So then he says, verse 11, should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Now, um, isn't that kind of funny? There's cattle there, Jonah. Now, do you have a Bible that has cattle that comes before the people? Does anyone have that? Does anyone have a Bible that says, does not pity the cattle or the 120,000 persons? Good. You all pass. Um, there are some Bibles that what they've done is that they've switched them mainly because they didn't want people thinking about cattle at the very end. But the actual Hebrew is, it's cattle at the end. So the last thing that Jonah hears is, um, also much cattle? So that's actually the way that, that the book is, is written. Uh, but this is an interesting question. The word pity, it's a feeling that goes out to one in trouble, but it's more than just sympathy. It, it moves us into action. It's this feeling, it's this happening that takes in place of our, in, in our gut that moves us, that compels us. I have to act here. And so, so he's saying, you have this pity over a plant. You're torn up on the inside. You want to do something about this. And so God is now saying, but should I not feel that within me about these people who are made in my image? About the very creation that I've made, this cattle? One theologian said, if Jonah felt in such a way about a plant, then how can he be critical of God's attitude towards Nineveh? The force of the argument is from the lesser to the greater, and the intensity of Jonah's reaction is being employed as a lever to give him insight into the Lord's attitude. He's saying, if you can be upset about a plant, how much more 
should we be moved to pity for those who do not know God? The fact that he describes these 120,000 people as those who do not know their right hand from their left, some people say it means small children, but it doesn't seem like that fits. The word, the word, uh, the word people is not the word that, persons is not the word that would be used for children. Nowhere else does it seem like that's being implied. Um, I think what, what's being shown is that these people have no hope of salvation apart from grace being shown to them. Apart from hearing the message of God, these people do not know their right hand from their left. It's not that they're innocent. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that spiritually they're blind. And they do not know how to achieve salvation, how to come to salvation. They don't know the grace of God until someone comes and gives them the grace of God or preaches it to them. And so uh, we could try to walk through what that looks like, but um, I actually have a video that I want to show you in just a second. This video was taken from a pastor up in Bellingham, uh, one of our NAB uh, churches up there. He is interviewing a pastor in India. So it's in, the, the video takes place in a car with an iPhone, uh, and uh, the, the pastor's name is Karan, uh, and he's going to talk about a village and about how they seek to, um, to atone for their sins. And, and just so you know, there are a few younger people in here. Mostly we're all adults. Um, slightly graphic in nature. It does talk about child sacrifice. Um, nothing I don't think that we can't handle, but I want you to just be aware of that. But I want you to think, this is how... These people are seeking to atone for their sins. So if you want to go ahead and, and show the video. That's our main motto. Now to go to every tribe, just don't be there in one tribe. Yeah. We are reaching Koya, the second most unreached tribe in India. Mm -hmm. uh, in, right now in Andhra So they have a practice like to, to offer sacrifice the first son first first chain to the gods mm. angry oh. goddess They're so what still, they will still practicing still child practicing, sacrifice still practicing mm. what they will do is that's a particular koya group what they will do is they will cut the head they will they will behead yeah. and they will offer sacrifice they will tie him to the tree mm. when the blood is coming they will collect in a cup and they will they'll just tie, they'll cut his head off and then yes. tie him to a tree upside tree. down and so when the, when the, the blood boy. is Yes. How old when they sacrifice? Eight years old. Eight years old. Yes. So when their son is eight years old, eight they're firstborn. They will bring that son for sacrifice. Yeah. Wow. To that goddess, wow. thinking that because koyas are like that, mm. they are the witch doctors. Mm. They are the they are the people who practice witchcraft so much. Mm. So through that, through through this particular thing, they think that they are they are appeasing right. the wrath yeah. on the village and the family. Mm. So they drink that blood and apply it to their faces thinking that their sins are forgiven mm. and God will, God, that goddess of that village will protect them. Mm. See, people are in darkness but still. So 18 villages like that we are right now continuously reaching. They say leave, don't come to our village but still we go. Mm. Continuously we are going. Mm. Yeah. So that's how we are reaching the unreached, planting churches and, ex and expanding the churches. Mm. Progress is really, really very good in the midst of this persecution also. Mm. That people, we say plainly, when you make this decision, be ready to be killed. Mm. Yes, they are coming, that understanding that Jesus is the true God. Yeah. 
So 18 villages right now that they're reaching, second largest people group in India. When the child reaches eight years old, the firstborn son, string him upside down, they cut his head off, they take his blood and pour it over them. That's the world that we live in. That's not knowing the right hand from the left. It's a reality of this world, of the darkness that is here. And they know, they know their sins. They know that there needs to be this atonement. And so uh, the missionaries then go into that, that city and, and they share the gospel about, about how God sent his firstborn son so that their firstborn sons would not have to die. And then a mother hears the message and she runs up crying and just says, if you had been here a week ago with this message, my son would still be alive. The world needs to hear the gospel. That's one thing we see here in Jonah is that our God is moved to pity. When he sees this world, he was moved to pity in that he and he is gracious and merciful and steadfast in his love and desiring to see other people come to know him. And the way that happens is by us going and sharing the gospel. Because the world is full of those in spiritual darkness. In fact, everyone here, if you've believed in Jesus, we've all existed in spiritual darkness prior to salvation. The only way any of us uh, see the truth of God's word is because of God's grace. Tim Keller said, Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yes, of course, he's infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. The cross of Jesus is God declaring to the world the love of God. It's the love that we need. It's the love that the world needs to hear, to have. And the only way they have it is if we go. And they're looking. Notice, they're looking. They're trying to make sense of the world. That's why there's all the cults that they're all in this world. People are trying to make sense of this world. How do we make our way through? Now, there are some atheists who will just deny it all, but there's a large other movement in which all these cults exist in which they, they see sin. They understand there's things that are wrong. There needs to be an atoning for, and they're looking in everywhere possible, but they're like blind people in a dark room looking for a switch when there is no switch. What they need to hear is the grace of Jesus. That they would be given new hearts, new eyes. And that they would see the gospel of grace. One thing Jonah does is it reveals to us the heart of our God. So that we would have confidence and boldness as we go. Our God loves to save. But this isn't actually where we end. It feels like where we should end, right? Right? Like, this feels like, what else do you say after this? But this isn't actually the only thing that we're to get here in Jonah. Because Jonah's the one being asked all these questions. The point is, Jonah, 
What we're learning in this story is a lot about God, who he is, how he works, but he's actually pursuing Jonah, which represents Israel, which really represents us, and he's asking him these questions because he's unearthing the sin within Jonah's heart. And the whole point is, will Jonah respond? And we don't know. It ends with just a question. So we're left to wonder, did Jonah respond? Did he repent? Or did he persist in his rebellion? Now you might say, does it matter? Yeah. It matters a whole lot. How we respond to God's grace is of paramount importance. So the message really is for the believer or the one who thinks he's a believer within the church. In Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus gives a parable. And it's a parable about a servant who owes a king a very large sum of money. And it was so much that there's no way he could ever pay it back. It's this extravagant number. And so the master says, well, I'm going to sell you and your family until you can pay it back, which will be never. So they will be sold into slavery forever. But the servant, he gets down on his knees and he begs and he pleads with the master to have mercy on him. And the crazy thing is, he does. He forgives this multi, multi-million dollar debt. And he says, fine, you're forgiven. I, I, I leave you of all responsibilities for the debt. But then the same servant, he goes out and he sees someone who owes him just a few dollars. And he goes to him and says, you owe me money. He says, I can't pay you. I don't have the money. So the guy who's just been forgiven begins to choke him, to beat him, and he throws him into prison until he can save, until he can uh, pay the debt. So, of course, very quickly, this news comes to the king. This is what we read in verse 32 of Matthew 18. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Here it is. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Does it matter if we're gracious to others? Does it matter if we have anger in our heart towards others? Does it matter if we're not forgiving people? Well, look, according to God's word, it, it matters a whole lot. The point of the story is that those who have tasted God's grace and his mercy will also be gracious and merciful to others. See, God's grace transforms us. It makes us more like his son. And so the evidence that we have been saved is that we love other people. Remember the great commandment. Love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The loving your neighbor is the evidence we love God. We're not loving our neighbor. We're not being gracious to them. We're not being merciful to become acceptable to God. We're not earning our salvation by being really nice to people. But what we see is that if we fail to show God's grace and mercy to others, it means we have not actually tasted his mercy and his grace. And therefore, we're still under the wrath of God. So what we have here is if Jonah does not repent, then it shows he's not 
actually tasted and trusted in God and His grace. But if he repents of his sin, if he seeks to, if, and seeks uh, the grace of God and is gracious to others, then he will have assurance of his salvation. It's of utmost importance that we are gracious and merciful people because that's what God's word does to us. It transforms us. It gives us to a new heart. And so we're left at the end. Does Jonah repent? Or does he remain the elder brother? Remember the prodigal son story? The elder brother is the guy outside the party. The younger brother went and rebelled. But he's come back. And the father has given him grace and mercy and lavished it upon him. And brings him into the house. Sacrifices the fattened calf. Puts his robe on him and ring on him. Loves on him. And the elder brother said, well, I'm not going in there. He doesn't deserve grace and mercy. I'm the only one who deserves grace and mercy. I didn't leave my father's side. I've worked really hard. So we're left with, will the elder brother go in? Will Jonah go back into the city? And We don't know. No, we can guess. And that's kind of fun. But what we need to come here, and is if you're here as a believer... Are you gracious to others? Are you merciful to others? And if not, then that is something we need to confess. And and I would say it is something that we're going to have to confess throughout a Christian life because God will expose these sins in our heart. We'll go, wow, I'm really not forgiving towards this person. I'm really not loving this person. And the evidence of our salvation is that we do repent. And we seek to be gracious. We seek to be loving. We seek to be more and more like Christ. So I just want to end very quickly with just saying how we do that on a regular basis. Number one, we must be in the Word. We must be in the Word. God's Word reveals to us the grace of God. We read books like Jonah, where Jonah forces us to see the grace of God, his mercy, his steadfast love, forces us to look at our own sin and see the self-righteousness and the unrighteous anger that we often deal with. And so we need to be people within the Word. If we're not in the Word, we're not going to be regularly seeing who God is, being transformed by His character, becoming more and more like Christ. And if we're only in the Word once a week, then we're starving Christians. So we need to be in the Word. There's one means in which God has given us. Second, we need to be in community. Notice, Jonah's not in community his entire time. He runs from God as soon as God says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. Nope, I'm running away. He doesn't go to his whoever friend. Says, hey, I'm wrestling with this. What do I do? But he hides from it. He doesn't, he doesn't talk with anyone. Now, the good thing is he does talk to God. And that is one thing we must always continue to talk to God through prayer. But we also need one another. We need one another to wrestle with things. We, we, confrontation is necessary in the Christian life. Through God's word, we're confronted. Through one another, we have confrontation. And we need to know that so we can receive confrontation. Unable to do that is the evidence of the self-righteous heart. We must be confronted. We must be confronted by God through his word, through his spirit, and by others. And we must be in prayer. 
Prayer is the means in which we call out to God and say, God, change me. God, I've seen my sin. God, I see that I'm not forgiving. I see that I struggle with grace in this area. It's hard for me to overcome it, but God, give grace. Help me. Show me how to be gracious. Those are just three ways. Be in the Word, be in community, be in prayer. We're forced with, with asking the question, will we repent as God is calling Jonah to repent? And so if you're here and you've not received Christ, I would hope that you would see the character of God in this passage and see that our God loves to save and know that you can trust in him and he will wrap his arms around you and, and give salvation. And if you are here as a believer and you see that, man, I do wrestle with these sins, I do wrestle with anger, then the text is inviting us to repent also because our God is gracious, because he's merciful. Because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This text is meant to draw us to him, that we'd repent and love him, and that he would continue to change us and transform us into the image of his son. So we're going to pray. And you know we can't change anyone. I can't change you, you can't change me, but we can be responsible for ourselves. And so as we pray, I want to give just a few moments for you to pray by yourself to God. And you pray whatever it is you feel like you need to. I wouldn't pray about other people at this moment. That might be evidence of some self-righteousness going on. But I would pray just for yourself. Just wherever you're at. However God's working in you right now. Just pray. Pray for God's grace. See what God does. And then I'll close this in prayer. Um, and we'll, we'll move into a time of communion where we celebrate the cross and resurrection of Jesus.